Some of them had been in comas for many, many, well, semi-comas, in and out. Didn't know nothing. What I was doing, I thought was right. And the patients that I took care of, I like to thank, you know, I made their passing easy. I was being the judge and the jury and executioner. I'm just Donald Harvey. I haven't changed a bit. I have been rehabilitated. I'm ready to go back to the streets. Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah. I'm Donald Harvey, and I'm ready to go back on the streets Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Boonville, Kentucky. <laughs> nah. Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Is he from Kentucky, Donald Harvey? Boonville, Kentucky. Oh, that's actually... Yeah, I wasn't making it up. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I've been through Kentucky many times. <laughs> I like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Though right now, I like Louisiana fast. Love my chicken from Popeye's. Yeah, sorry, it is pretty tasty. What a weird way to start (laughs) an episode. So it's Karen and Mary today. We are going to talk about Donald Harvey. From Boonville, Kentucky. From Kentucky. I I think everybody knows who this dude is. Anybody who's into medical true crime. And even not. He's one of America's most prolific serial killers. He killed upwards and over 75 people, patients, and friends, and family, and people that pissed him off. Oh my God. He is a self-professed angel of mercy. However, I believe some of his murders may fit the angel of mercy category you know, we'll, we'll see. We can talk about that, but most weren't. And I think he enjoyed killing and it gave him a sense of control and power. So he was an angel of death. Yeah. And like many serial killers, he had a very traumatic um, childhood. But we know that a traumatic childhood doesn't turn people into serial killers, but it can be a predisposing factor. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of people that have had traumatic childhoods that are not serial killers. Exactly. Some people turn out to be not such great people and blame their bad doings on it. And there are some of the most incredible people in the world that have um, overcome. I've overcome it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And there's somewhere in between. But definitely, um, you know, again, not going to get into the nature versus nurture part of things. But I think it's a good place to start is his early childhood. And we can see where, well, let's just get started. So his parents were Goldie and Ray Harvey. Goldie was 14 years old when she met Ray. So there was a 17-year difference in age. Oh, my gosh. He was a 31-year-old Navy veteran. Now, Goldie had a traumatic childhood. She suffered from sexual abuse, beatings, and neglect. So she was looking for someone to love and take care of her, someone like a father figure. They got married when she was 15 years old. And they moved into a three-room farmhouse in Boonville, Kentucky. Now, this, this, this is a very poor place to live. 
and the farm they moved on to didn't make you know enough money for them to live on it just produced enough for them to have some food for themselves and not even enough of that so they decided to move to Hamilton Ohio for a way to find a better job on April 15, 1952, Donald was born. He was a healthy baby, 18 pounds, 14 ounces. However, he was colic. How, how much did you say it was? 18. <laughs> I thought you said, did you say 18 pounds? I think I did. I was like, what? <laughs> That's a huge baby. He was born a two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> he was born a fully two- grown two-year-old <laughs> with teeth and, teeth and hair and walk, being able to walk. Oh, no, exactly. eight pounds, 14 ounces. <laughs> Still, that's a pretty big baby. I was baby. in such a good role there, too. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be sorry. It was me, but okay, let's, let's, get, okay. So he was, he was colicky for the first six months. Goldie said that he screamed all day and all night. So his parents took turns carry, caring for him. One night, Ray fell asleep with baby Donald in his arms and he fell to the floor. He hit his head and they didn't take him to the hospital. So for me, that's head injury number one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He also had chronic ear infections. Mm-hmm. When he was two years old, he was admitted to Mercy Hospital with a fever of 104 and pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And he had seizures. Now, I'm not saying seizures are head injuries, but there's, Meningitis? you know. Meningitis? No, I think it was from the fever. Okay. But still. Infl- Goldie. Inflammation. Could some be. kind of, yeah. Now, Goldie and Ray fought a lot. Ray started cheating on Goldie soon after Donald was born, and they would get into fist fights, and they beat the shit out of each other. Broken teeth, cuts needing stitches, bumps and bruises, but it sounds like it was a mutual beating up. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think they were both horrible to each other. Well, that's what she grew up with probably, right? Yeah. Sadly. When Donald was three years old, Goldie left Ray. And returned to eastern Kentucky to live with her parents. Ray followed after them three weeks later. They moved into the old house, but Ray was barely home. They didn't sleep in the same bed. He was just sort of there occasionally. So he didn't have any father figure. The home itself was nothing more than a shack with a tin roof, coal stove for heat, no running water, and an outhouse. And from a very young age, Donald had to do chores um like hauling water and coal now if you've ever had to do that you know how incredibly difficult that is to do especially when you're a little guy so they were very very poor um when he was five years old he was riding on the running board of a truck and he fell off and it was said by goldie that he wasn't knocked unconscious but his eyes rolled together Okay. Okay. Head trauma. Yeah. So yeah, head injury number two. Um, and he had a large laceration on the back of his head that needed sutures. Oh well, yeah. Then that's definitely a head trauma. Yeah. So his head injuries may have caused brain injuries. Right. And we don't know, like damage to the frontal lobe, etc. We we know how that uh, um, can affect your your personality and. Like impulse control and, and things like that. And, and so if any of these injuries, we, we, we've been learning that serial killers often have head injuries. Head injuries don't make serial killers. But again, like we're talking we about predisposing contributing, factors. Contributing factors. Exactly. 
Now, Donald didn't have any friends. He spent a lot of time alone. When Ray was home, Goldie would take Donald to stay at his at her at her mother's home, and he had a good close relationship with his grandmother, so that was good. But it was not a great place for him to go, because her half brother Wayne Bird lived with the mother, and this sick bastard started sexually abusing Donald when he was four years old, and he abused him for sixteen years. Oh, Jesus Christ. Now, some people will say, well, how does a 20-year-old, 18-year-old continue to be abused, you know, at some point that they can um, go on their own and walk away? But this is, from four years old, this is an imbalance of power. Mm -hmm. You're taught from a very young age um, some really fucked up, twisted things. And it, it becomes like a, a normal thing for you. You're, you do you know what I'm saying? Like after a while, it's like this imbalance of control and this is just how it is. Um, and, and there was, you know, a sense of numbness that, that happens, but it was really confusing to him because he didn't know that was what was being done to him was wrong. I mean, Wayne groomed him, manipulated him and abused him. Mm-hmm. Uh, his abuser hurt him, but would also do nice things for him like give him affection when he wasn't really getting much. He took him to the movies and gave him candy and stuff like that. Now, how significant are those things when there's no father figure around? They're incredibly poor. He gets to have these treats. He's actually having someone sort of pay attention to him. It's such horrible mixed messages. Yeah, and there's, you know, like I said, uh, when someone's being sexually abused, it's about power and control, and so... You know, yeah. there's also threats, but then there can be those confusing messages too, right? That's how they manipulate them. Well, it gets worse. Um, and I'll tell you that in a second. His grandmother caught Wayne abusing Donald when he was 14 years old, and she admonished Donald and wouldn't allow Donald and Wayne to share the same room after that. And there, I don't know what happened to Wayne. Like, he didn't move out, but I don't know if he was admonished as well but you know who knows what was known by the family at that point but he wasn't protected let's just you know put it that way and when I say it gets worse it does because he was also being abused by a much older neighbor neighbor by the name of Dan Thomas and he started to sexually abuse Donald when he was five Mm -hmm. and he abused him for 15 years another imbalance of power and Donald was really afraid of uh, Dan. He would stay inside, try to avoid seeing him. And it was almost as soon as he would go outside, Dan would be right there. And he would threaten him that he would kill his mother and his grandmother and a whole lot of other terrible things if he told anybody. Mm-hmm. And he also paid him, which... Okay, that's even more confusing, right? Yeah. Donald's sister, Pat, was born when Donald was five years old, and then uh, his brother, Tony, was born when he was seven years old. He didn't want to lose any of the little affection that he got from his mother, so he started to help out in the kitchen and around the house. But he was teased by his father, who was barely home, and his grandfather, and they started calling him a pansy and a Pollyanna because he was helping out. At nine years old, a neighbor woman gave him a baby chick as a pet. Now, his mother told him that he couldn't keep it because, it, you know, she didn't think it would survive that young. And so he hid the chick in a barn for a few days, and then his mother found it and said, look, you've got to 
got to give that chick back to the neighbor. And so he took the chick outside and chopped it in two with a hoe. He said if, uh, you know, he couldn't have the chick, he would have to destroy it. Oh, my goodness. This, I mean, it's horrible stuff that he yeah. did, but it's also just horrible. In a prison interview, he said that he felt a release of anger, tension, and frustration when he did that. And when he was 16, um, in order to lash out as well, he um, like lured, walked out a couple of cows out, to the woods and slit their throats and he said um that's all i did with animals just that <laughs> so um hmm. huh. and so it made him feel powerful at 14 he took care of his ailing grandmother she was bedbound. he bathed her took care of her um bed sores he took over all the chores in the house cooking cleaning laundry etc and the other thing to point out here, Donald was very meticulous in his appearance and cleanliness. He refused to wear jeans and t-shirts. All his clothes had to be ironed and his hair was always perfect. He put a ton of effort into how he looked and how clean he was. And he was really popular with female students. They just thought, oh, hey, this, this guy, he looks great. And, you know, he was considered like a nice looking guy, um, you know, well put together. But he didn't have any male friends and they all called him a sissy. And he wasn't into contact sports and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he was a good student. But he had to leave school in grade nine because he, in shop, he was doing some woodworking and he um, made an error and some wood got destroyed. And the shop te teacher said, you owe me $3.20. He went to his dad. His dad said, nope, too bad. The teacher said, you can't come back unless you pay. So he dropped out of school. Is that even legal? Uh, this was in 1960-something. Yeah, but still. Yeah, well, 1960-something, uh, small town, you know, um, obviously, I don't know whether it was legal or not, but that's what happened. So he moved in with his neighbors, Finley and Lizzie Bowles. Um, Donald took care of Finley. He was disabled. So he took care of Finley and Lizzie as well, who was diabetic, uh, and cleaned the house for room and board and $40 a month. And he did total care for Finley, how, all the hygienic care, bed baths, vital signs, all that kind of stuff. And he gave insulin to, to Lizzie. And he used the money to take a correspondence course to get his GED. So when he was 16 years old, he moved to Cincinnati and lived with Wayne, uh, one of his abusers, his um, uncle. And he lived there for a year and a half, and the abuse continued on until then. He had odd jobs, and it was there that he started having his first sexual encounters, aside from ones where he was being abused. He had control of these, these um, encounters. In 1970, when he was 18 years old, he moved to London, Kentucky. And his grandfather was a patient there and he would go visit him and he got to know some of the the staff there and they said hey look we're looking for an orderly we see you take help take good care of your, your grandfather he told them all about the health care he had done with family and friends and they offered him a job and he was hired on the spot so he was hired may 11th 1970 and he was 18 years old and this was a catholic hospital 
he met two orderlies there and started a sexual relationship with both of them. One consenting, one not. He started a relationship with Millard Patton. And it was very casual, but Millard really liked Donald and hoped that they could live together. So he went and stayed at, with him at his aunt's house, but his aunt knew that they were having sex. So he said, she said, Donald's got to go. And then Randy White was the other orderly. And because he had no place to stay, Randy's mother offered for Donald to live there for uh, room and board. And he moved in and Randy raped him. And he continued to do so until um, for the next 10 months. Oh, so Randy raped him. No, yeah. I thought it was, I, for some reason when you said that, I thought it was going to be the other way around. No, no. Donald was, okay. So no, that's what I mean. Like, one was consenting, one was unconsenting. So Millard, he had a casual sexual relationship. Randy raped him. He did this for 10 months. So another abuser. Yeah, and it caused him to feel powerless again. Because you think about it, this is where he has to, this is where he's living. He has nowhere else to live. And he works with this guy. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read about him, this guy was, you know, a masochist. He was a sadist. He was a, 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 a terrible person. So when he started at the hospital, there was no formal training. He shadowed other orderlies and um, a nurse by the name of Margaret Rudd, whose name will come up in a in a little while. Okay. So she trained him in to... Uh, vital signs, input and output, put of urine, fluids, um, surgical prep, personal hygienic care, you know, feeding those, all those kind of things. 19 days after he started, he killed his first victim. He was 18 years old and 19 days later after his first shift. On May 30th, 1970, he killed Logan D. Evans, who was 88 years old. He was considered a difficult patient. Uh, He had no family or friends. He had been an alcoholic. Uh, He had a stroke and partial paralysis and confusion. He went into his room to check in on him, and he was covered in feces and urine. He smeared the feces onto Harvey. Now remember how fastidious Donald Harvey was. Okay? And this guy now has smeared urine and feces on him. So he suffocated him with a plastic bag and a pillow. He placed a stethoscope over his heart and listened to it stop as he was killing him. Like as he, you know, obviously in the action of killing him, he couldn't do it. But as he was dying, he was listening to his heart stop. So after that, he cleaned him up, bathed him, tidied up the room and left. Logan's body was found four hours later and his cause of death was uh, determined to be natural causes. Mm -hmm. Harvey wasn't scared at all. He wasn't afraid of getting caught. He felt empowered. He felt like he was in control and he really liked this feeling. 18 years after that first murder, Harvey was interviewed by John Douglas, who is like the father of um, FBI profiling, the behavioral science unit. Yeah. So um, I've got a clip. First, I'm going to tell you, Uh, From another interview, what he, when he was asked how he felt after killing this first patient, he said, quote, relieved. When I killed Logan Evans, I was killing Dan Thomas, Millard, and Randy White, and Donnie, the old Donnie Harvey that people did things to. He was dead. The new Donald Harvey was in charge. 
end quote. His second victim is James Tyree. He's 69 years old, and it was considered an unintentional death. The nurse told Harvey to catheterize the patient, um, but the nurse had actually transcribed it wrong, and the client didn't need to have a catheterization. So the patient refused. Harvey forced it on him. And when he did, Tyree cried out in pain, begging him to take it out. A struggle ensued, and Tyree vomited blood and died. Oh, jeez. Okay. So thinking that he was in trouble, he went to one of the nuns, and this is what one of the nuns said. Not to worry about it. It was an accident, and people die. She told him not to tell anyone. Okay, well, does she have, like, you know, when you go to confessional and stuff, like, does that sort of apply to nuns, too, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> yes. No, I just, I'm asking, like, for real, because I'm not Catholic, so I don't know. Well, I'm Catholic, and that, you know, that has nothing to do with being a nun. This is all about let's cover it up. We don't want anybody to know, because there was other crazy shit going on at this hospital. Okay. Oh, yeah, it was Catholic hospital. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the third victim um, was killed on June 22nd, 1970, and it was um, Elizabeth Wyatt. She was 44 years old. And this is what he considered his first angel of mercy death. She was dying of lung cancer. She was very sick. She was end stage. And she spoke of her desire to die. She didn't want to have her children and husband watch her die. And he decided on his own without talking to her to end her misery, as he put it. Um, She was in an oxygen tent and he turned down her oxygen so low that she, you know, couldn't breathe. She couldn't, she in essence suffocated. Um, Four hours later, she was found dead by one of the nurses there. So, okay, we talk about euthanasia and different things like that. But, but here's the thing. He didn't get consent. He didn't say, hey, look, I'm going to help you out here. Let's talk about this. He didn't give her a chance to say, hey, do you want to say goodbye to your family or any of these kinds of things? Look, there is a huge, huge moral, ethical discussion that can take place around this. But I'm just saying that as much as he thinks he was an angel of mercy, who did he really do it for? His fourth victim was Eugene McQueen. He was 43 years old. Congestive heart failure, very sick, required total care, and the doctor's orders said not to lie him on his stomach because he just would drown. He wouldn't be able to breathe. And of course, he rolled him onto his stomach. (laughs) Four hours later, he was found dead and they ruled it an accidental death and they covered it up. Fifth victim. Was he, I'm curious, was he found on his stomach? No, but they asked how, like, what happened? And I guess he told them because he was the last in the room and they, they just covered it up and said, look, let's not talk about this one. So his fifth victim died two days later. His name was Harvey Williams. He was 82 years old. He was diabetic, blind, was in the hospital with chest pain and was told to be put on oxygen because his chest pain was getting worse. Uh, he put him on oxygen uh, with a faulty tank. And so he actually wasn't getting oxygen and he died of a heart attack. Now, you always check your oxygen because the things you learn is that just because it says full doesn't mean it's full. And just, you know, you, you have to check your machinery to make sure it's working. So he just hooked him up and walked away. So it could have been a faulty dial. It could have been actually empty. Who knows? Um, 
So what did, did he do? Did he knew that? That it was faulty? Yeah. No, I don't think so. So, but, so that was more, not, you know, but, not really his fault? Okay. But still negligence? Well, yeah, he didn't check it. Okay. But anyway, he hit the tank to use in the future. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so he's like, oops, I killed him. But you know what? I can use this in the future to kill other people. This is absolutely horrible. Just um, warning you guys here. A patient by the name of, this was his sixth victim, uh, by the name of Ben H. Gilbert. He was 81 years old. And this was his first premeditated murder. Gilbert and Harvey didn't like each other. Gilbert called Harvey a demon from hell, which isn't that far away from the truth. But uh, Gilbert had dementia. He was paranoid and confused. And sometimes a patient that has dementia or paranoid, confused um, delusions, they may you may remind them of somebody. Yeah. Okay, so it's not a personal thing. It's just that you remind them of somebody or there's something about you that triggers them in some way. Or they think you're that person, maybe. Well, that's what I'm saying. So anyway, during a shift, Harvey... Um, as he was entering the patient's room, Gilbert smashed Harvey on the head with a metal urinal and he knocked him out cold. And then he poured the urine all over Harvey. Oh no. Yeah. And he thought Harvey was a burglar. Okay. Then he proceeded to kick the shit out of him. So he smashed up his ribs and he had cuts and bruises and stuff all over him. This was in the hospital? Yeah. It can happen. Believe me, it can happen. It still happens. Um, so... I think he attacked Harvey out of fear and confusion. There was, there was, I don't believe at all that there was anything behind it. There was no malicious intent so here. So maybe he thought he was actually in his home, right? Like uh, he had dementia? Uh, yeah, probably. he just, he thought he was a burglar. So regardless, Harvey was furious and he planned revenge and he retaliated the next day. Okay. Um, this is what he did. He tied Gilbert down and he put a frame like it's um a burn frame over him which has like a sheet or a cover so that the, it doesn't touch your skin the sheet doesn't touch your skin but he put it over top so no one could see what he was doing okay he inserted a pretty large catheter for a male 20 uh number 20 catheter he straightened out a coat hanger and he shoved the wire approximately two feet into the patient through the catheter. He punctured his bladder, his bowel, and his stomach. And the patient died four days later from peritonitis. Can you imagine the excruciating pain? I can't even fathom. So he basically was like, I'll let you rot from the inside. So even though he admitted to torturing and murdering Gilbert, he didn't take full blame for it. So, but this only came to light after right after right but could you caught. imagine shoving like putting in a catheter but you know methodically opening up a coat hanger and shoving it up like that's some real sick shit right there that's yeah. a lot of anger and fury yeah. and you think about it like he involving a catheter and male you know genitalia and stuff like that i believe there's so much you know, uh, projection so much, you know, going on there. Sure. Sure. I'm going to 
ream you basically yeah you you and hurt me uh you caught abused. me when i was um uh what do you call it uh, caught me off guard um when i couldn't protect myself and you humiliated me you know uh, same same and right? so yeah Okay, so I'm gonna. So he blamed. He didn't take full responsibility for this, and I'm gonna play this clip now. I, I thought it would better to to save it for now. So, um, have a listen to this. I shouldn't have done that. I should never been allowed around that patient again. That was poor security on the the hospital's part. I mean, you beat me up today, and then I'm taking care of you tomorrow. Oh, I don't think so. Oh, I don't think so. Wow. I mean. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, I get his, po I get his point. Yeah, because it's traumatizing. This guy beat you up, and then you expect to take care of the guy the next day. A hundred percent. That should never have happened. Yeah. Doesn't mean. It but was you right can go and him. say, "Look, this guy kicked the shit out of me yesterday, and I'm not. You reassign me. I'm not taking care of him." Um. But people don't open up a coat hanger and basically shish kebab their organs. Right. I mean, yeah, but you see, he takes zero, like he takes, he's like, I, I shouldn't have done it, but was, you know, if they hadn't have done that, you know, I, I wouldn't have, which is bullshit. He would have found a way. He probably from the moment that he had recovered, he was probably had an idea of what he was going to do to him regardless mm -hmm. but you can see how he he doesn't feel bad about it at all and he feels justified what he in what he did and then furthermore i mean if the hospital hadn't done that i wouldn't have done it okay so yeah mm -hmm. okay so things start to get really weird here okay <laughs> if it wasn't weird already enter vernon midden okay I'll, I'll try to explain this as best way that I can. Okay. Randy and Millard were friends with a mortician by the name of Vernon Midden. They ran into each other through, you know, just work, bringing patients or him picking up, you know, deceased. Vernon was married with three kids, but he was also closeted. And Randy and Millard had told him about Donald saying, hey, there's a, a new gay in the village. <laughs> not the only gay in the village yeah. um vernon and donald this is how they first met okay donald was carrying out an amputated leg <laughs> to vernon in his hearse because the patient had died and the family wanted the leg to be embalmed with the rest of the body right okay, okay? so Ver so donald brings out this leg to vernon and vernon says hey you want to go out for dinner <laughs> And Vernon's like, yeah, okay. So then Vernon picked Donald up. Wait, who asked who to go out to dinner? Vernon asked Donald. Okay. Because so Vernon. Vernon was like, okay, I'm interested in this guy. Um, and there was a mutual attraction. So Vernon picks Donald up from um, the hospital after the shift and took him to a restaurant. Afterwards, they had sex in Vernon's car. And this sort of started the, the relationship. That, it lasted for the next seven months. So Vernon and Donald abused the corpses sexually oh my god okay one of the things vernon had done with other lovers was that he would have them take a cold ice bath so that their skin would feel like a dead person's he would lie them in a casket and give them oral sex 
He wanted Donald to do that, but Donald's like, I oh, know, I'm not doing that. Donald spent a lot of time in the mortuary embalming room with Vernon. He um, And Vernon kind of taught him how to be a serial killer. He told him how to... Um, how a person could be killed without evidence, like placing a plastic bag over the person's face before using a pillow to smother them to keep from leaving fibers from the pillow on the patient. He also showed him petechiae on the eyelids and around the eyes uh, to say, hey, this is what happens when a person is smothered. He told him, he showed a person with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning and how the skin goes this bright red color. And Donald also helped prepare the bodies dress them, and put makeup on them. Now, Vernon practiced witchcraft. He was a part of a coven. Okay, this just keeps getting I told you, weirder and weirder. I told you. <laughs> he was part of a coven that was like uh, 60 years old, so it was like an old embedded coven. Uh, and he hosted meetings there. So this is how Harvey was introduced to the occult. And it would have an impact on him, and it would play into some of his murders in the future. Okay. So Donald was allowed to observe the rituals, but not participate because he was not initiated into the coven. Guess what Vernon was doing? Something sexual, I would assume. Now he took organs and livers and testicles from the corpses and used them in the rituals. Now, remember I told you how that nurse Margaret Rudd was going to come up? You know, well, she was a part of the coven. Coven. She was part of the coven. Um, and... At the, at the meetings, they did a lot of drugs, um, hallucinatory drugs, stuff like that during the rituals. But Donald intentionally stayed sober. He wanted to watch. He didn't. He wanted to be in control. Margaret often showed up to work impaired. And one of the things she loved to do was drug patients with morphine so they wouldn't um, wake up during the night shift. She wanted them to sleep right through. <laughs> so she didn't have to work. Yeah. She also stole opiates. Back in the 70s, especially in small hospitals, there really wasn't an inventory count. Yeah, not like it is today. Oh, God, no. And so opiates were um, easy to steal. You know, as long as, you know, you didn't steal like a a lot at a time, but you could easily get away with it. Now, remember, she was like his mentor at the hospital. And now she's... It's like the perfect storm. She's a friggin' member of the occult where there's rituals from... Patients that had died at the hospital she worked in from the mortician who brought them and she got wasted on drugs. Alcohol. I mean, <laughs> told you this gets weird. And they became really good friends. Also, it is thought that she may have been involved in some of the deaths in the hospital, some of the murders separate from him. Um, like in one case, there was a very sick baby that had a lot of deformities. I it didn't say what in what it what, what okay. this baby had, but somehow this baby died in her care and there was no reason the baby was not that unwell. And there were patients that sort of passed away on her shift and stuff, probably from overdoses from the the morphine, morphine. stuff. So um so like I said there was a lot of sketchy stuff going on and here's case in point right there nuns covering up deaths uh, a doctor was like yeah no we we'll, we'll sign it off as this you've got Margaret Rudd here one of the head nurses supervisors who is doing all this crazy shit <laughs> you know like what the hell so Donald no wonder he was you know arrogant and cocky about all of this he didn't think he was going to get caught in any way 
Okay, so his seventh murder is uh, took place on August 15th, 1970. Remember... Okay, he, so when was he hired in 1970? Is this all within like the first nine months? First 10 months. Oh my goodness. Okay, so uh, <laughs> Maud Nichols was 64, so she died on August 15th, 1970. She was 64 years old. Um, she was transferred from a nursing home, from a horrific nursing home, um, where like it was unlicensed. And it was a, a house of horrors. She had bed sores all over her body. And these sores were so deep that bone was exposed. Oh, jeez. And there was maggots crawling all oh, in these wounds. And she would scream constantly in, ag- in, in agony. And no uh, one wanted to take care of her. I can't even imagine that kind of pain. Uh, neglect, pain, horror. Like, I, Yeah, that, this, it makes me feel really sick. Um, Donald decided that he was going to mercy kill her. Um, she was on oxygen, so he grabbed that faulty tank and hooked it up, and she died uh, early the next morning. His eighth victim was William Bowling, 58 years old. He was admitted to the hospital because he had difficulty breathing, and so he turned off his tank, and he died. Well, just because he had difficulty breathing. I mean, what was he, like, end stage something? Come on. But no, yeah. but just because he had difficulty breathing? No, but because, well, you, but that's, there was no reason why these, these deaths are happening at this point. Um, I can see where he would, you know, maybe consider the, it's a mercy killing for other patients, but this is just because he loved to kill. And it was, he uh-huh. had the power, the control, the release, the feeling of, of being a god. So the next four patients were, I call them the faulty tank killing method. <laughs> So Viola Reed, 63 years old, leukemia. He tried smothering her but failed, so he hooked up the faulty tank. Sam Carroll, 80 years old, pneumonia, bowel obstruction, hooked him up to a faulty tank. Silas But uh, Butner, 62, kidney disease, faulty tank. John V. Combs, 82 years old, COPD, heart disease. He tried multiple times to suffocate him, failed, so he used the faulty tank. His 13th victim was Marguerite Harrison. She was 91 years old. She had a heart attack. And she was um, needing such care that she was being fed with a baby bottle. That upset Harvey, so he decided to mercy kill her with morphine, Demerol, and codeine. 14th murder was Maggie Rollins. She had severe burns on her arm, and he smothered her with a pillow but in the way that Vernum taught him how to. Plastic bag, pillow, smother, get rid of all the evidence. And that's the thing too. He would clean up the area, clean up the patient, sort of um, like stage them. You know what I mean? So that they, you know, were just looked that they were sleeping peacefully. Well, and if he was known to be like such a fastidious person and stuff, like, it wouldn't be out of character that, you know, if, if he'd been in the room that it was all clean and everything because people were like, oh, that's Donald. He's just so thorough and clean, right? Well, yeah, and they would. these patients were usually found hours later. Or if someone was walking in on him, he'd go, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, he would be... The thing is, he was so calm and collected with everything he did. He was not, I mean, freaking out about this. He's just like, okay, I'm going to do this one. And he always kept his cool. Yeah, there must be something in his, you know, like emotional well, well, yeah. frontal cortex that was, you know. All of it together, I believe. Um, so the 15th murder was Milton Bryant Sasser, 91 years old. 
Um, it was an overdose of morphine. But he almost got himself caught because the injection that he gave him with morphine, he took the needle and threw it down the toilet. It clogged the toilet. Um, it was found, but there was no suspicion. They didn't, you know, put the two together. But this is how, like, cavalier and arrogant. He's like, all right, done. Toss it in the toilet, you know. So that almost um, got him caught, or at least more of an investigation. But right. this hospital was all about, you know, covering yes. stuff up and everything. Um, okay, so I'm just going to sum this up. Over a 10-month period of time, 18-year-old Donald Harvey, 18, had killed 15 people <laughs> in many different me methods, many different ways, for many different reasons. And But he liked to think of himself as an angel of mercy. He was a narcissistic sociopath that loved and craved power and control, and it made him feel godlike. So this is where I'm going to end today's show. Okay. Part two, you're going to hear about his what, what he did moving forward, the next place he worked, what was going on with his relationships, and how he continued to spiral out of control. Okay, so stay tuned for part two of Donald Harvey. Angel of mercy. Angel of not an angel. Not an angel. Okay, so um, I I was just um, flipping through Facebook when just before I uh, we recorded, and uh, I found this post from Lorraine, and it made me think of a, a funny story. So the post says, what does it mean when holy water sizzles when it hits your skin asking for a friend? <laughs> <laughs> so it reminds me of a story of something that happened with me. First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just tell you what some of the answers were. Sarah Cloud. I don't know about holy water, but I know I burn if I step into a church. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Taryn Knighton. It expired. <laughs> it's expired. It's expired. <laughs> Margarita Gonzalez, who's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote, uh, it means we should be friends. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's my quick story. I had a friend uh, whose mother was a Irish Catholic. Um, very devout, devout Irish Catholic. And as we were getting into teenagers and going out and stuff, she liked to bless us with holy water before going out. Okay. <laughs> so one time when she was blessing me with holy water cross on my forehead, I did go. <laughs> 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 she just went pale <laughs> and just looked at me and I'm like, oh. I felt bad, but I also thought it was funny because she was a sweet lady, but it was like, you know, you're 14, you're waiting to go out and you have to be blessed with holy water. And it's not even your own parent. It's someone else's, but it's like, okay, bless me. We were Catholic anyway. So it's like, right. all right. But oh, this one time just... the devil took me over and I went. <laughs> so that's what this post reminded me of. Oh goodness. That's and of course it was me making the noise. It didn't really, I still have the scar. No. <laughs> Okay, so let's see. You have and many scars. I have many scars. Um, so that's the end of today's episode. I uh, next episode, I'm going to uh, 
continue on with the Women's Health Series. And then after that, more Donald Harvey. So I hope all of you are doing well out there as best as you can be in this crazy world that we're in right now. Yes. And uh, just take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Love each other. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.